0: Um, So, hey, good morning. Uh, It's really good to be with you guys. If you do have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn to Mark chapter one, if you haven't already. Uh, And if you don't own a Bible uh, and you would like one, uh, just visit us over at the connect table after the service. uh, And we'd just love to send you home with one. Uh, Our gift to you. Uh, So if you don't own a Bible, make sure you grab one before you leave. Um, We're walking through the Gospel of Mark this year, and as you may have noticed, we have a really interesting passage this morning, right? We're walking through the Gospel of Mark, and I said before that Mark, when he's writing his Gospel, which is basically an account of the life and ministry of Jesus, when Mark is writing his Gospel, his primary goal is, in writing, is to settle the issue once and for all on who the real Jesus is. Who is Jesus? Because everyone in Mark's context has this idea of who they think Jesus should be. We in our context have this idea of who we think Jesus should be. And so Mark kind of settles the issue for us about who Jesus is, how the real Jesus is better than assumptions that we tend to make about Him. And so we're in chapter 1, and the people in, the, in, this, in this book, the people in the Gospel of Mark, even they're still getting to know Him. They're still getting to know Him. They're just getting a taste of who He is. And so they're starting to form their own assumptions about Him. And slowly, verse by verse, as each chapter unpacks, we start to see Jesus' true identity emerging from the text. And the main truth that we're going to see from our text this morning is that Jesus is the one who comes with a new and unique authority. Jesus has authority. His authority is new, and His authority is unique. And we all have to deal with this word authority, right? Because some of us, some of us have a bad taste in our mouths when it comes to that word, right? Some of us have a bad taste in our mouths when it comes to that word authority. Like if you're like me, then that word might stir up these bad thoughts or emotions and memories that you're just kind of happy to just leave behind you, right? Because some of us have been hurt by toxic and maybe even abusive authority figures. Maybe it is like a family member, maybe a, a boss, or an, 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 an employee, uh, maybe it was even a pastor. And so when you hear the word authority, it just kind of gives you chills. But that's why we're saying that Jesus has a, a new type of authority. Jesus has a unique authority. His authority is a truer and better authority. He's the one who redeems the word authority. He doesn't use it to oppress others, but but to serve others. And so I want us to look at four aspects of Christ's authority in this text. We're going to first look at the nature of his authority, uh, then the authority that he has over the supernatural the authority he has over the natural, and then what he does with his authority. So let's look at that first one. The nature of his authority. What is the nature of Jesus' authority? Read verse 21 and 22 with me. It says that now they, which is speaking about Jesus and his, his new disciples, the fishermen, they, Jesus and his disciples, they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he, Jesus, entered the synagogue and was teaching And they, the people, were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. We'll stop there. So in some sense, earlier in the chapter, we kind of already got a snapshot of Jesus' authority, right? We saw signs of his divine authority in his baptism. The Spirit descends on him. The voice of the Father Falls down from heaven, and then we also saw it last week when Jesus calls out these four common fishermen. He says, "Follow me," and they just follow him without any hesitation or delay. And so we've already seen a snapshot of Jesus's authority. But here in these two verses, we actually see the word authority for the first time. And that word authority is the Greek word exousia, which literally means like out of the original stuff. That's where his authority comes from. It's out of the original stuff. It comes from the same root as the word author. And so in other words, Jesus is more than the greatest character in the story of the world. It's like he's the greatest character and the author himself. That's the kind of weight of the authority that he carries with himself. And so when he's teaching in these synagogues, when he's teaching in this particular synagogue when he's unpacking for them the true meaning of life when he's unpacking the will of god and the good news of the kingdom he taught as someone who had authority that was original and not like derived from somewhere else and it says when the people heard his teaching they just went nuts over it they were astonished mark says because In verse 22, it says that because they taught, he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So what does that mean? Who are these scribes? You see, scribes were these, the sort of the normal recognized teachers in the synagogue. They were experts in, in, in the law. They saw themselves as sort of the guardians of Jewish teachings and traditions. And so these were the guys who would normally, like on the regular, be expounding the Old Testament law and writings for people in the synagogues. And history tells us that the common way that a scribe would, would teach is they would drop names all the time. They would say things like, you know, as Moses once said, or as Rabbi so-and-so Stein once said, Right? Like, and then they would expound on that 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 teaching, right? But Mark tells us that when Jesus was teaching, the way he taught was different. The way he taught was unique. The way he taught was newer and better. You see, the scribes appealed to the Old Testament prophets. And those Old Testament prophets themselves only spoke by God's authority authority given to them. But because Jesus Himself is God, He spoke by His own authority. He spoke as the source and the center of all truth. This is why in other passages of Scripture, like in the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' most famous sermon, That's why Jesus says things like, you know, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say, he who looks at a woman with lustful desire has committed adultery in his heart. Or throughout the Gospel of John, rather than appealing to the Old Testament, he just gets out there and says, truly, truly, I say to you, I say to you, truly, I say to you. You see, Jesus doesn't have to drop any names. He doesn't have to drop names because His name is above all names. He doesn't appeal to some greater authority because He is the authority. His truth is the truth. He taught with an authority like no one else taught before. And we're told in verse 22 that His listeners therefore were astonished. Their minds were blown. And this astonishment is, it's not like when you hear a great sermon and your mind is blown because of the preacher's like, rhetoric or skills of per- persuasion, which I know you're like, yeah, that's never happened. <laughs> never happened here. Uh, but it's, it's, it's not like that kind of astonishment where you're just kind of blown away at the, guy's, at the guy's skill. Their astonishment is more like what it would be like if Jesus kind of showed up at your house and started rearranging the furniture, Right? moved himself into the master bedroom. like That's the kind of authority Jesus had when he walked into this synagogue. He shows up in their house of worship, in their house, starts speaking better than the scribes themselves, and you can just kind of picture the people in the synagogue looking at the scribes like, are you cool with this? Like, Can, can, he, can he do that? But his authority, the way he carried himself, and his authority just kind of spoke for, its, for itself. And the crowds couldn't deny it. They were astonished, Mark says. You see, he doesn't just speak as someone who can teach truth powerfully. He speaks as the source of truth. As though truth, life, beauty, all found its source in him. And at this point, things start to get a little crazy. (laughs) Read verse 23 and 24 with me. It says, immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. That's a demon. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us, destroy us demons? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And that brings us to our second point, where we're going to look at Jesus' authority over the supernatural. Jesus has authority over the supernatural. And so we see, you know, things kind of get interesting here. Jesus is teaching... And this demon shows up. Mark uses the phrase an unclean spirit. And that word unclean doesn't refers less to, actually refers less to dirtiness and more to sort of like intrusiveness. Like this is an outside presence that doesn't belong. Basically, this man's body has been possessed. And so now you might ask, why would we talk about demons? Like, isn't that weird to talk about demons this day and age? But one of the helpful things about going through books of the Bible is that we have to talk about whatever's in the scriptures, right? Like with topical preaching, you kind of get to cherry pick whatever's easy, whatever's palatable, whatever you think people will like and want to hear. But for us, God put it in the scriptures, and my job is to deliver the scriptures to you guys. And so we're going to tackle this strange topic of the demonic in this point, because it's here in the text. Now, there's a story written by uh, C.S. Lewis, this book he wrote, called The Screwtape Letters, that sort of teases out how demons might work behind the scenes. And, and in it, he has this, this makes this statement that uh, I think is interesting. He says, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race, the human race, could fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence And the other is to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So, what Luce is saying here is that people tend to respond to demons in like one of two ways. You either say, they don't exist, so don't, don't talk about them, stop being weird, I don't believe in them, so I won't worry about them. And like some of you here might be in that camp. And others of you have this unhealthy fixation with Satan and demons. Like, you blame them for everything. Like, even Genesis 3. It's not my fault. The devil made me do it, right? Yelling at your kids because they're making you mad? Like, oh, it's just spiritual warfare. They made me do it, right? He made me do it. Or you see something like like running late because you're stuck in traffic is spiritual warfare. It's like, no, you should have just woke up early, right? But the reason that you might deny the demonic is probably because your worldview is, is shaped by sort of like a Western post-Enlightenment type of modernism, right? Like people in third world countries, especially in urban contexts, they face come face to face with the demonic like all the time. We hear stories, like I've seen stuff, and and but here in the Western world, like we say, you know, science taught us that there's only physical and there's no spiritual. And so therefore there's only natural and there's no supernatural. But even this most staunch skeptic has to admit that there are things in this world. There are things in this universe that we all believe in, but cannot be explained by natural processes. That cannot be explained by a collision of cells or rearranged carbon, right? Like, if it cannot be explained by the natural, then it is, by definition, supernatural. But we all have faith, regardless of where you're at on on the faith spectrum, on the Christianity spectrum, we all have faith in supernatural concepts like honor. And like virtue, like purpose, like hope, longing, love. We believe in right and wrong and the concept of evil. There's this anthropologist named Helen Fisher who's done like all kinds of lectures and TED talks on what she calls the chemistry of love. And I found this National Geographic article where she references this picture of a bride and her groom. And the groom kind of is Picks up his bride. He's like hoisting her up in the air, and he's got this like victorious, like fist, like he's just full of joy, and uh, and there's just this big goofy smile on his face and joy all over his face. And underneath, uh, she writes the caption: "Look at the joy of this man. He has just won the most important thing in his life, the opportunity to pass along his DNA. Isn't that just heartwarming? Right? Like romantic, right? Like." You uh, see, like there are things like love, like evil, like hope that we just all know and are compelled by. And here Jesus is pointing out the influence of the demonic in the spiritual realm and evil. Now, to be clear, I'm not discounting legitimate mental illness, like psychosomatic conditions, actual physical conditions with clinical diagnoses. For a lot of situations... Medicine can actually help. And it would be a mistake to dismiss the physical and think that every problem is a spiritual one, but it would also be a mistake to dismiss the spiritual and only evaluate the physical. And it's clear in our text that this man, the man in our text, has a spiritual condition. We're told that he's being tormented by an unclean spirit. And look at how Jesus responds. With authority. Verse 25 says that Jesus rebuked him. He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they, the people, were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. You see, the Bible tells us that we have an enemy. If you're a believer in Christ, then we have an enemy who prowls around like a lion seeking to devour us. But the good news that we just read is that Jesus is the greater lion, He's the lion of Judah, and He's come to set captives free. Satan's sin in the flesh and, and evil will try to enslave a Christian. The, where the quest of be- like the, where things that we care about all of a sudden start to enslave us. So the quest for beauty turns into an eating disorder. The quest for comfort becomes an addiction. The quest for success becomes workaholism. The quest for belonging becomes people pleasing. The quest for influence and power becomes oppressing others. And we turn into empty shells of who we were created and who we were supposed to be. Empty shells of who we were intended to be. And so Jesus comes, and what we see in this text is that he comes with a new authority, a better authority, a unique authority to defeat the demonic. To remove the power of enslaving sin. To break us free from the shackles. You see, back in that day, scribes and rabbis would try and deal with demons, but it's like exorcism style, where things will get weird and messy really fast. But Jesus shows up with total divine authority. He comes with unique authority, with original authority. And he says to the unclean spirit, get out of here. And it's done. Real authority. You see, the demons can still lash out, and they still do. Demons can still lash out, but they no longer have authority because of the cross of Jesus Christ. The world, both the natural and the supernatural, has already been claimed by the loving authority of God in Jesus Christ. This leads us to our next point, point three. Look at Jesus' authority now over the natural. Verse 29 says, Immediately from there, immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him, they told Jesus about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her. And then she began to serve them. Now, this is fascinating because at this point, the fame of Jesus is like spreading, right? The fame of Jesus is spreading all over. And you'd think, you would think that like Jesus would just kind of ride that wave, right? Like he came to save the world and people are hearing about his power. They're hearing about his authority. They're hearing about what he can do. And you'd think Jesus would say, this is the time to get out there. This is the time to go big. This is the time to go public. But that's not what happens. You see, instead, you see Jesus enters the house of a common fisherman. He enters the house of Simon, one of his disciples, who has a mother in law who's sick with a fever, and Jesus heals her. Now, you can make a good argument that most of Jesus' miracles were intentionally sort of orchestrated to prove to everyone that He's the Messiah, that the kingdom of God is at hand, that, the, that God has broken into humanity to, to overturn evil, right? I mean, Jesus is declaring that He's Lord. He, he said that. He's declared that He's Lord. The Father's voice said that. Lord over all evil, over all creation, over the Spirit and the body. He's Lord over all, and there's none like Him, but here in Simon's house, what we see is that it's not a public dis- demonstration of his power and glory like we would expect, but we actually see a humble demonstration of his compassion and his care. What we see is that he really does care about the, all the effects of sin on the world. He really does care about fixing all that is broken, even in the mundane. There's nothing too big for him, but there's also nothing too small for him. And we need that good news because most of our lives is lived in the little moments where we feel the brokenness of the world, right? We need that good news because most of life is lived in the mundane. A few days ago, Alyssa and I were visiting with an old friend of ours. He turns 97 at the end of this month. You could say he's an old friend in the real sense of that word. Um, some of you guys know him, Pastor Bill, uh, Pastor Bill Acton, his, and, and he, like Pastor Bill, he turns 97 at the end of his month, and his mind is still super sharp, but his health and his body is like fading fast. Like his knees can't support his body anymore, so he just lays in bed all day long, listening to audiobooks and talking to, to friends who visit him. And his body is so exhausted that he actually fell asleep while he was praying at the end of our time together. In the middle of his prayer, he fell asleep. (laughs) So um, that's when we knew we overextended our stay. Um, But during our visit, we actually asked him about his health, how he was feeling, and about his well-being. And he told us at one point how um, one of the sweetest moments for him is the time that he wakes up. And he said that every morning he wakes up and he meditates on four attributes of God. He says, God, you are omnipotent. You are the all-powerful one. And then he says, when I was sleeping, he said, you had power over all the universe, holding it together. And he says, God, you are the omniscient one. You're the one who knows all things. While I was sleeping, he's like, you know what's going on in my body. You know what's going on in the world. And you're still in control. He says, God, you are the omnipresent one. You're the one who is always with me. Even while I was sleeping, even while I was unconscious, you were near. You were with me. And then he says, God, you are the unchangeable one. You're impassable. You never change. And you are faithful. You're faithful in your love. You're faithful in your compassion faithful in your mercy and grace towards sinners like me. That's what he prays every single morning. And that, for us, listen and I were talking about it in the car afterwards. That was, a, that was like a needed reminder for me. A needed reminder that our God is with us and our God is for us in the everyday stuff of life. Even when we're sleepy. I'm loved by, my, by a Redeemer who cares about the details who cares about what I'm facing, who won't turn a deaf ear to my prayers, who can heal something as tiny as a common fear. This morning, ask, like, what area of your life are you feeling the pressure of this world's brokenness? What area of your life are you feeling the effects of evil and sin on this world? Where are you facing trial? Suffering, confusion, weakness. Because of Christ, you can say in those moments, my Redeemer cares. My God cares. And we know that He'll be with us to spread His glory and kingdom throughout the earth until the day that He returns, because He promised to. You see, the day that He returns, every final mark of the fall will be done with. When he returns, every stain of sin will be blotted out from all creation. And then we will live for eternity in a place with no evil, no sickness, no sadness, no suffering, no sting of death. That is the victorious compassion of King Jesus. And we're reminded in this text that he has authority not only in the spiritual and the supernatural, but and the natural, too, and just the everyday stuff of life. Read verse 31 again with me. It says that he, Jesus, came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. He lifted her up and he raised her up. That phrase in the Greek is the same that's used to describe the raising of Jesus at the resurrection. In other words, when Jesus brings his new authority to bring in the kingdom and his authority to restore the world, his authority doesn't crush, it doesn't oppress, it doesn't intimidate, it resurrects. It causes people to rise. Simon's mother-in-law is no longer bound, she's no longer enslaved, now she's free. And when you believe in the gospel, it sets you free. Finish verse 31 with me. He says that the fever then left her, and then what did she do? She began to what? Serve them. Look at what she does. She serves. She doesn't go about doing her old business. She got up and served the one who served her. She gave herself to the mission of serving others, to hospitality, to building up community. In the same way, Jesus gives us a new spirit and a new life. And everything that we were created for, everything that we were intended for, we're free to do because of Him. The shackles are free. And we don't serve to pay it back to Him or because we have to do that for Him, but because we get to. Because we can now. Because we're well enough to. Jesus has authority over the supernatural and over the natural and lastly, I want us to look at what Jesus does with his authority. Look at what Jesus does with his authority. Read verse thirty two through thirty-four with me. It says that evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he, Jesus, healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Now that last line is a fascinating one. The demons are the only ones so far in the gospel of Mark who actually know who Jesus is and what he came to do. They're the only ones that know the true identity of Jesus, and he silences them from speaking. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? And commentators have suggested that the reason that Jesus would do that is because he wanted to kind of keep the crowds at bay. He basically wanted crowd control. So now why would he try and control the crowds rather than get the news out? Why wouldn't he generate buzz, right? Like, that's what we would do. We would want to generate buzz about what's going on. We want people to know the real Jesus is here. But but Jesus is controlling the crowds. They were coming to get healed by him, but Jesus... He controlled the crowds because He did not come to heal people from their pain and affliction. Ultimately, He came to heal them cosmically, to reconcile them in their sinfulness from a just and good and pure and holy God. You see, Jesus didn't come to heal people primarily from pain and affliction, but He came to heal them cosmically. He came to preach repentance and the good news of God's kingdom. You see, and in his compassion, in Jesus' compassion, Jesus gives them real healing. He gives them real healing, but that's not the purpose he came for. He was on a mission to get to the cross. And We saw in verse 26 that when Jesus expelled the unclean spirit, that the man cried out with a loud voice, and the spirit came out of him. Later, in Mark chapter 15, there's actually similar words used to describe Jesus' last breath. As he hung on the cross in our place for our sins. You see, Jesus was the only human to walk this earth who was truly clean. Jesus, the only person to walk this earth who was truly pure, truly clean, was executed on a cross as though he was a person defiled. A person of defiled character. The only one who had true and unique power he gave up that power and authority to serve. You see, the purpose of Jesus' authority wasn't to flaunt it wasn't to wear it on his sleeve. Jesus's mission on what he was supposed to do with his authority wasn't to flaunt it, but to give it up. To silence the evil spirits once and for all, he had to give up his own spirit. It wasn't driven out of him, it was given up by him. And everything that we see in Mark 1, everything that we've seen so far, the healings, the exorcism, the miracles, the purpose of all of that wasn't just to, to be miracles in and of themselves. The purpose of them were to point forward to a greater victory. A greater victory that he would accomplish at the end of his ministry and his life on earth. To once and for all destroy the power of evil, of sin and death, by taking death itself into its grave by taking death, death that should be ours and taking it on himself. He gave up his spirit in his death so that in his resurrection, he could breathe his spirit into us to make us new, to make us whole, and to make us like him. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast.